Actually, that is a good question. Do you have a favorite curse word? I mean, you can't beat fuck. Yeah. yeah. I mean, let's be for real. It, it's uh, it's just it's so multi-purpose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you have to take fuck out of scripts a lot of time? Like after you've written it, do people do studios like to tone down the amounts of? Um, you know, in Problem Child 2, we had to take it out. <laughs> no, yeah, the, um, that's good. <laughs> uh, uh, sometimes you do. I mean, yeah. it's one of those things where you don't, um, uh, you just don't want it to be used to be used. I mean, right. but we've been very fortunate. We've made a lot of, almost all our movies are R-rated, I think. Um, almost. Uh, but certainly, you don't have to, when you make a movie like Autofocus, the least yeah. your worries are the word <laughs> fun. Um, yeah, and that, yeah, like we're doing this uh, a movie about um, uh, John McAfee right now, uh, and he uh, there's there's lots of fucks in that script. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, you, you, since you do a lot of R-rated stuff, you don't really have to keep track of that in your head. Like, oh, geez, am I on? Well, I guess it's one if you're in a PG-13 situation, and then you're done. So it it's matter. one uh, if it's a non-sexual. Oh. You can say fuck you, but you can't say I want to fuck him. Oh. oh, we were fucking. That that gets uh-huh. you in trouble. That that gets you an automatic R. Wow. Because use that in 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 in, uh, in in the sexual term. But if it's used as a, you could end up saying fuck off as right, your last right. line, and you'd be fine. I mean, hey, we said motherfucker on TV, so we we. Uh, yeah. know, I think that was a gigantic. Uh, was that FX? Uh, that, was, that was FX for. Uh, um, Marshall Clark says it last line when she finds that giant Cochran's uh she's great joining the uh joining the team. Yeah. And we always we always um assumed they wouldn't let us. Huh. But we always assumed it would be uh, you know, Cochran. Mother and you sort of yeah, you cut to you cut to the credits. Yeah. You know, which would have worked. And just we it's just it stayed in, it stayed in, it stayed in good. and then sort of wasn't uh, you know, they decided to go for it. That's pretty rad. Yeah. Uh, well, fuck it. Let's let's <laughs> roll right into this. Show. Sure. Let's bring us in. Welcome to the Pure Cinema Podcast, um, season two. Uh, we are doing another special in-person episode here. Uh, we've got a very special guest, Larry Karaszewski, screenwriter of such amazing films as Ed Wood, uh, Big Eyes, People vs. Larry Flint, Man on the Moon. You can't uh, fuck this up because there's posters all around us. Yeah. I got this, man. <laughs> Most recently, uh, The People versus O.J. Simpson f- yeah. for FX. Re- thank you so much for being on, Larry. Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. So, and we already talked about Ed Wood, I was just saying. So if it doesn't, it will, it'll come up in passing. But because it won't be our number one on our list, it might have been had you not be sitting in the room with us. But we don't try to kiss too much ass. Well. That's bullshit. I, <laughs> have, I, I was promised some ass kissing. Yeah, yeah. We have 12 episodes you can right. go back to look I for name drops of you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we definitely talked about Ed Wood a lot in the uh, Films on Filmmaking episode. That was one of our favorites. Um, we are usually just go straight into our kind of, I guess it's not so much a game, but like our five films because, but I did, there's a couple just quick little questions I wanted to ask kind of about, sure. uh, based on true story stuff that I was sure. just curious about. Um, I was I'm cu- quite happy to have this be more of a general discussion yeah, about yes, the true yes. story genre. Than and we'll talk about films and you can talk, you can right. go off as much sure. as you want to, but I was right. curious about when you're, lo- when you guys, you and your partner are looking for the hook of the story, uh, how much... How deep does that hook have to go? Like, do you need to know the whole story when you're doing the initial research? If there isn't a lot on someone, how, where do you? How do you know where to take it? How much? How much? How much kind of freedom do you have when you don't have all the pieces? Um, and I guess that's a legal question as well. I don't well, really. it's not really. It, it is. I guess not really a legal question because uh, either you have the rights or you don't have the rights mm. or you don't need the rights. So it doesn't really. Um, How's that um, discerned though? It's discerned if uh, someone's dead, if uh-huh. someone's a public figure. Uh, you know, you tend not to need the rights. You don't need family to uh, sign off on things? You need um, uh, only if you, say, include 
family. Uh-huh. Of, uh, but you don't need, uh, you know, not if someone's, anyone can make a movie about Abraham Lincoln. Right. Anyone can make a movie about John F. Kennedy. Anyone can make a movie about, you know, Bob Hope right now. So if they're you a know, public they're, figure. They're a public figure. If they're a dead public figure, you can sort of say almost anything. It's, and there's it's no very, time limit, like 50 years or there's just. No. Oh, okay. Well, no. I didn't know that. Um, um. You know, so uh, and usually this winds up being, you know, they're they're you can kind of as long as you don't libel people yeah. if they're if they're alive and and um, you know it's uh, it's uh, we don't we need uh, we need to see the movie in our head before you know I don't think I don't think we've ever really done sort of what you're suggesting yeah. where we sort of like you know say oh maybe we should do. Maybe we should do, you know, Martin Van Buren. Right? Right. And let's, uh, go look, let's <laughs> go read everything about Martin Van Buren and figure yeah. it out. It's sort of like, you know, we sort of, we've sort of always, uh, it's not a bolt of lightning, uh, but it's more like we know the story we want to tell, and then we do the research to sort of fill in the blanks or whatever. Uh, um, and we do lots and lots and lots of research. But it's part of our philosophy in general, uh, making these kind of movies. It's sort of what we brought to the the genre was that, that we decided sort of uh, two things. One, to sort of like not do cradle to the grave as much as we possibly can. Which, you know, try to do, try to figure out how to like tell someone's life story in a very tight, how little, how many, how little years can we, do we have to cover? Right. Uh, you know, why is it, you know, we always ask that question, why is this person going to be remembered? Why is this person, why are we, why are we making this movie? And if you can answer that question, it winds up probably being the sort of the end of the film. You know, uh, um, uh, and so that gives us a, you know, like you could have made Ed Wood could have been, you know, about Ed, followed Ed into the porn years and being, uh, you know, drunk on Hollywood Boulevard. But we decided that, you know, he's known for two things, uh, his relationship with Bela Lugosi and his, uh, you know, he made, quote unquote, the worst film of all time. So that so and that allowed us to structure the movie over like a five year period. Did you know that early on or did or do we, you actually start writing the porn period as well and then start? Oh, it no, back? no, no. OK, so you no. know exactly where you're yeah. trying to head. Yeah. So, um. Yeah, and 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 we just have to have a connection to the, to the character in a sense that uh, you know we sort of, um, you know, our specialty is sort of uh, we we jokingly say it's we write biographies for people who don't deserve biographies and and you know the sort of the anti great man biopic, um, and so we you know our our our, our movies um, uh, I wouldn't say we're the first people to do it, but we're the first people to sort of like really kind of run with it the idea of you know uh, looking at sort of pop culture fringe. Uh, and it, and for us, it also needs to have something a little bit more than just they did this or they lived it or that happened. We need to have a bit of uh, you know uh, uh, some kind of theme or some kind of issue to go. I mean, like Larry Flint, for example, he had a, he's an incredibly entertaining, crazy life, but having that First Amendment battle yeah. to to sort of submit, you know Ground to anchor story, anchor yeah. the film. Same you know with Big Eyes, you know it's uh-huh. a crazy story, but the, having the female empowerment thing, you know, the, with Ed Wood, we, we you know it was about looking at Ed's life and and really sort of um, you know the, the, talking about the passion that he had about filmmaking, trying to sort of sort of saying forget the forget the forget the fact that these movies aren't good but what about what 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 can you learn from Ed Wood and Ed Wood was like he believed in himself he believed in his friends he believed in filmmaking he just wanted to make movies any way he could and and we I I think Scott and I looked around and saw so many of our friends in that similar position where yeah. you know and and it's uh you know no one sets out to make a bad movie on purpose it just sort of kind of happened but Ed was making the kind of movies he wanted to make were you guys Ed fans of his film were you how um, aware of his films oh, before oh very very much yeah. so very much so 
How did you find it, by the way? Was it through a Perry book or a or Turkey Wool um, book? Well, no. Initially, um, I mean, we've, we've certainly told this story quite a bit, but the, uh, uh, you know, Scott and I were kind of high school students when the sort of the, uh, you know, the 50 worst movies of all time and oh, the yeah. Golden Turkey things yeah, came yeah, out. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, so there was this whole cottage industry where, which... Uh, uh, you know, they would they would bring these movie the bad movie festivals, and everyone come and laugh. Yeah. And um, uh, when Scott and I were roommates at USC Film School, uh, we always talked about how we wanted we wanted to make a movie about Ed Wood and particularly about him and Bella, Ed and Bella love story. But like, who would make a movie like that? And so when we um, but after we started making movies and we had the whole Problem Child experience, which was a Problem Child was kind of a big hit, but it was kind of you know it was not the movie we really wanted to make, and it was not and it was critically just ripped the shreds and <laughs> so we were sort of look we sort of went back to the uh the idea of right, making a movie about ed and we were like well, what if you make a movie about ed and not make fun of him what if you make a movie about ed and say you know uh you know uh and just play him as this sort of like this dreamer and 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 because we because you know the problem shot thing was so painful for us that we now had sympathy for someone who was kind of being labeled the worst filmmaker <laughs> of all time. We were, we were going into pitch meetings, and someone would say, oh, wow, what a great idea for a movie, but you guys are the guys who write problem <laughs> job movies. And so, wow. you know, that kind of thing. So we just, we, it was our idea just to go make a small independent movie and just sort of like restart our career in a different path. Uh, and uh, it happened to land on Tim Burton's desk and, um, <laughs> you know, it sort of changed our lives in a big way. How faithful, I mean, I guess, because we're going to be talking about, we, we initially were thinking about a topic to talk about with you when we were talking about biopics, and then we extended it to be more like based on a true story. Because right. even Fargo says based on a true story right. at the start where I guess none of it is whatsoever. Right. How many, when you're dealing with real people from history, how, many, how much liberty are, do you allow yourself to take? Uh, how faithful, I mean, I assume you're trying to be as faithful as you possibly we can. We try to be as faithful as we possibly can. We actually think that's kind of... Um, uh, that's kind of the fun of it. I mm. mean, in a weird way, we are we are picking such uh, outlandish people to write movies yeah. about. That sort of like the, it is a case of truth is stranger than fiction. For that's almost why we're embracing it. It's so it's uh it's um you know we don't we're not trying to you know clean up anybody or also you know we're not necessarily trying to invent anything. Where where you know where people get all worked up about is is the you know, you're taking someone's life, even if it is only five years, mm. and you're turning in two hours. Yeah. So you can't show everything. You can't include everything. So you have to shape that in a dramatic context. So it's not about it's not about lying. It's not about uh, um, you know, like oh, having some some weird plan. But it's but it's, but it's more that you know, you have to treat it like a movie. You know, if you watch a regular movie. You know, Jerry Maguire doesn't, you know, in the middle of Jerry Maguire goes and he sells his house and moves in and gets another wife and then he comes back and he goes moves to Ohio for three years and comes back. It's like that doesn't happen. Things have to have, you know, so so you have to sort of look at their lives and say what is important to the story you're telling, you know. um, uh, And so a lot of times it's like so a lot of people get left on the. Uh, left in the in the on the sidelines. I mean, Ed Ed Wood, for example, he had a he had a partner named Alex Gordon, who was actually one of his original connections to Bela Lugosi. Bela Lugosi had several people who were like Ed Wood and taking care of him during his, you know. But but it's like that's not part of the story, you know. We wanted to tell. So sometimes you condense other characters into like, yeah yeah we yeah. Just we don't really we don't we don't that often do what we call a composite character, which is a lot, that happens a lot of times too, where people sort of invent. A best friend who follows uh-huh. these people around, and that that person never existed, or a boyfriend, or something, just to give their life a consistency. Uh, so we, we rarely ever invent a new person. Uh, 
but you got to you have to shape it. You have to you have to turn this thing. You have to turn their life into drama, and you have to be, uh, you know, uh, if not true to the specific facts, true to the, uh, um, uh, you know, the spirit of the facts. And that's that's not that's not wiggle room. But but for example, for something like People versus OJ, I mean, that I had ten hours rather than two yeah. hours. But even in that case, you really have to condense things. Something like Barry Sheck's DNA evidence, uh, you know, that was presented. That that took weeks. Yeah. You know, we do it in I think a three-minute scene <laughs> where wow. we're dealing with other issues in the courtroom as well. So you have to like you know you have to go through all the all the um, you know three weeks of, three weeks of testimony of Barry and realize what's a good part. So you're circling that part and you're like you're connecting that part that three lines he said on Tuesday with the eight lines that he says on Friday and joining them together. And then he was including something else and that thing that wrap-up thing he said to the reporter outside that was actually kind of good. We'll put that in there too. So it's like no, it wasn't necessarily his his the exact same thing he said from start to finish in the courtroom i mean you you, you don't you know why would you want that anyway <laughs> uh uh you know so you have to figure out how to make how to how to make it truthful yet dramatic yeah the libel thing that is interesting because I, I wonder it must be hard like let's say ed wood's dead you're making film on him but some of the fringe players are still alive do you have to get the life rights to each one of those or how how does it work to once again most of my movies are about people in the public Okay. Uh, limelight. Right. You know what I mean? It's like even Edward's cronies right. were starring in films. Right. You know, Paul Marco is the president of the Paul Marco fan club. So I mean, yeah. he's, he's 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 throwing himself <laughs> out as a as a as a public figure. You know. Uh, so public figure just means anyone if you're out there. In if you articles. if you have if you have announced yourself as a person in the public sphere. Mm. Hmm. You know. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and you know you have to be care- you know the the libel thing is, uh, you know are you are you doing something that is going to hurt this person? Right. And it's kind of hard. You know, mo- you know it's kind of hard to argue uh, that we're, we're actually hurting anyone. Yeah. The um, you know uh, I think the person that we were always really afraid of was Jerry Falwell. Yeah. And, right. and Larry Flint. Um, um, but that seemed you know so we were very careful when. Almost everything Falwell says in that movie is um, actually he had said somewhere. Right. So we, we you know we weren't you know we weren't trying to defame him in any way whatsoever. Huh. And initially we set up the Larry Flint movie without Larry Flint's involvement whatsoever. We it, we it, the movie was well on its way into production before um, we got a signature from Larry Flint. It was um, and that was more about like having him uh, being able to use things like the Hustler logo. Yeah. That's where you get into trouble. Right. You know. Um, the you know having uh, using copyrighted uh, stuff uh, in a true story that's where that's where the the line gets really kind of funky. I mean, he ends up looking almost heroic to a certain yeah. extent. But so. I'm just saying that that, yeah. that that's the that's where you need to sometimes get a signature. Like for example, on Ed Wood, we didn't have rights from people at the, for a long period of time, and we felt we didn't need them. Um, but Disney felt because the movie was being called Ed Wood. That they were that that just being able to have that name that they would have they would they wanted to cut a deal with Kathy Wood to oh, yeah. you know so that they would have rights to the you know the name, um, so. Did, no, I mean this. I'm sure you've been right. asked this a million times, but did you guys uh, like always have an interest in these true life stories, or is this thing you because you did it well once you kind of started getting cast in that way? Um, I think we always had an interest in these type of stories. Yeah. You know the 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 sort of uh, uh, 
you know, I when I pick up a biography, uh, a book, um, I always skip to the sort of like last hundred pages where things <laughs> fall apart, you know, uh, where the where the where the shitty stuff stops yeah. happening, I, you know. Uh, it's like, hey, where's it? Where's it? Where's the where's the decline years? Um, You've never so, done the Poe, the last week of Poe. That would be uh, interesting. The um, so we always had an interest in that, and I think um, this probably is a good segue to your to the show here. Is that is that when we wrote Edward and and all of a sudden we were on a uh, you know won Academy Awards and and uh, uh, you know we had all this attention um, the we sort of looked at the biographical genre and sort of saw it as you know needing a real kick in the ass that you know people come along every 10 years and reinvent the action film or read you know reinvent the, the comedy or pu- you know push boundaries this way or do something like that and and no one had really done that with the biographical film it was always you know uh, there was always there's a lot of gandhis it's a lot of a lot oscar of, bait Obviously, oscar yeah. bait yeah the, the oscar bait the boring noble yeah. guy who did something great mm-hmm. the great man kind of movies and we were like and that was kind of the stories that didn't interest us we thought we thought what if you apply Sort of the genre uh, tropes and the, and the specificness of how to tell that story, but do it for people who are, you know, sort of swimming in the opposite direction <laughs> from society, whether it's a pornographer or a transvestite film director or, you know, whatever. Uh, or, yeah, comedian, doesn't, who, doesn't, comedian who, doesn't, who, doesn't, who doesn't make people laugh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so was, the idea was, was like, you know, what, what if you, you know, they are, and, and all of a sudden that just felt so rich and vital in the sense that it was like all of a sudden they're, these people's lives are full of conflict, yeah. you know, uh, um, uh, because they're obviously, there's everyone's, and they're not necessarily wrong, but everyone's trying to say, you're, you're not doing that right. Yeah. Is um, Larry the Larry Flint the only one you've met of the, sub, the key subjects you've ever met in oh, person? No, not at all. Um, I mean, Margaret Keene, I have a great relationship uh, with Margaret Keene from Big Eyes. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, was you know, uh, almost everybody who is not Andy Kaufman right. in Man on the Moon is uh, was associated with the film. Uh, yeah. That was one of my favorite evenings of all time. Was um, we had a, a kind of a bad test screening <laughs> in the on the East Coast somewhere, and um, afterwards we uh, we came back into the in the New York City, and the real. Uh, George Shapiro, the real Bob Zamuda, and the real Lynn Margulies was uh, were there, and um, and Scott and I went to our, our hotel rooms and we called just like let's go let's go get let's go get a drink we need need to get a drink whatever so we go downstairs and there's George Bob and Lynn at the bar and we sit down and we start getting drunk with them and uh, uh, you know talking about this talking about the problems the film was having and we uh, so we leaned to each other we're like. We're getting drunk with our characters, <laughs> you know. It's like, it's like we're, not, we're not we're not getting yeah. drunk with but we're getting drunk with our characters tonight, yeah. talking about like you know the narrative problems of the. Does film. it make you want to go back and rewrite when you get to know it? That's <laughs> fine. Well, like, Zamuda oh. would always say things like Zamuda would always say things like if I uh, we ask him a question yeah. about it, and he's, he's like, well, if I answer this way, will that mean I have another scene in the film? <laughs> 
Well, I think that is about as good a segue as we'll get into the into Absolutely. the episode. So, well, we were originally uh, just going to pick five films that were based on true story, but then you started. You had all these great ideas for subcategories. Yeah. So we, I figure we'll just like as we go to a subcategory, we'll just like you know we can just like sure. ramble on it, and yeah, then we'll yeah. list a movie. And that, no sound, big deal. that sounds good. That sounds um, good. I think, so first on the list, I think was crime. Crime, yes. And I found uh, that to be honest, like four, I think of my picks end up being crime anyway. So many. <laughs> yeah. So many well, are crime driven. Yeah, I mean, you probably have to fill them in a little more about what the concept is, but the uh, but I, my picks too were they. Uh, I thought I'd stumbled onto something by saying, "Oh, let's do these categories," because yeah. there's definitely the crime biopic, there's the showbiz biopic, there's the you know, there's the epic biopic, yeah, all these kind of thinly veiled. And then the, yeah, there's a bunch of these. And but but the more I I started, I pick one. Yeah. And in fact, I even I have written them down because it's one of those things where like oh. That one could be that and that, and oh, yeah. then that. It's about the cr- the criminal from showbiz. The you know crust. what I mean? It's yeah. like that, and it's four hours long, so it's an epic. You know, so it's like one of those weird things. Well, and there's a lot of categories. I mean, yeah. you could have. I think when you yeah. first you could have had like ten easily sort of subgenres of yeah. this. But I think we're we got about five or six. Right? But it's interesting <laughs> that 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 you know there is a um, and I think that Scott and I are our own subgenre. You know what I mean? Right. It is it's sort of the the what we call the anti biopic or anti great man biopic. Uh, that's our that's our underdogs. It yeah. seems like there's a lot of underdogs dog value yeah. to it too or just, just, just more just weirdness yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, do you get turned I mean do you get turned off of a story even if it's a great real life story but it's just nothing like that no quality like that obviously the McAfee story you're talking about is like bonkers I remember yeah. you know seeing that on CNN years ago uh, um, uh, I don't think we get turned off. It's just like what, it has to be like, what's the connection to us? Mm. Why is it singing? Why is it singing to us? Like we did um, um, a script that never got made. Mm. We wrote a, a biography of the March Brothers. Mm. It was kind of a. It was, but it was our most um, uh, Dickie Attenborough thing mm. we ever wrote because they are actually people who deserve a biopic. Yeah, they are people who are certifiably yeah, yeah. great. Yeah. And um, uh, I'm, I think we're both really proud of the script, but I think it might be—it's it's kind of strange to us that you know we can get a we can get a movie made about the the guy who murdered Bob Crane, but for some <laughs> reason we can't we can't get a movie made about the Marx Brothers. But that's sort of our mojo. Our particular mojo is works really well for people who are sort of you know in the underbelly of society. Yeah. And I think that what we what we discovered last year with with. Um, with OJ was the, the, the sense, and this brings us back to what you're talking about, crime, that, that adding the cr- criminal element to what we do added another thing on top of it. So now we're doing a Patty Hearst movie, and, and uh, the McAfee thing is a, yeah. a certain criminal element to that, too, where it's sort of like uh, it, it takes what we, we do, which is very esoteric subject matter, but you throw in a gun, you throw in a murder, you throw in something that actually, you know, seems like a life and death stakes, and it, and it seems, it's. It, I mean, that was easily the most successful thing we've ever done, and I think that was because of it, because it seemed to have, it had a, 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 a heft and a depth that, that, uh, that uh, you know. Something slightly more sensational to kind yeah. of grasp on. But yeah. the thing about the OJ was, I was surprised there was anything left to say. Like, watching it, I was surprised how fresh it felt every week, like, even though we most of us lived yeah. through it, even though we are pretty young. Yeah. Just felt like saying, you know, fresh. You were discovering fresh nuances and the details, I guess. Yeah, you know, which was that's cool. what it was. It was, uh, it was interesting that we we felt we had the right for two different audiences: people who uh, lived through it and knew everything, mm-hmm. and people who were like our kids, who sort of like you know just knew OJ as that kind of you know chubby guy who's probably murdered his wife <laughs> and is in, is in jail. You know, <laughs> right. uh, so there were two different and and so our marching orders was really tell you as many things as you don't know. Yeah. And specifically because you were seeing, um, you were, I mean, it was nonstop coverage, but you were seeing it really from one angle. 
Right. And so very early on, um, uh, you know, we talked about uh, turning it into a Robert Altman movie, uh. basically being able to see, sort of seeing that everybody in the O.J. Simpson trial thought they were the star of their own movie <laughs> and, and really sort of like, you know, giving every side, every person, uh, you know, a bit of dignity and a bit of like, you know, they, they're, 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 they're in there fighting for something. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so no matter what, we also felt that it was kind of interesting that no matter what you thought of these people, we were going to give you something and say, hmm. You know, I, I I didn't think I liked Marsha Clark, yeah. and wow, she really, well, wow, she really had to put up a lot of shit. Oh, I thought Johnny Cochran was a bit of a peacock, just, but oh my God, he actually was really sincere about his, you know, his battle with the LAPD. And so yeah. there's all you're seeing all these, this complexity of uh, of, of character, and and um, uh, we uh, we really loved it. What well, nuances are like when she gets her hair done? It's just you, you feel it. You yeah. feel for her so much. Um, but crime, crime, yes, crime, <laughs> uh, crime, which can like obviously go true crime. Uh, right. You know, serial killer crime. Even serial killers get their almost own spinoff from that. Sure, I mean, it's sure. it's never ending. So right. Uh, and I was also just... thinking about even the early days of Warner Brothers, where like the thinly veiled right. uh, biopic is like you know all those Public Enemy and Little Caesar. Those yeah. are all just torn from today's headlines. Head, the yeah. headlines of the, of the time where you know so it's like there's a bunch you know crime the crime biopic has always been always been with us yeah so i, I have multiple that will be crime yeah. but let's start with you like is there t- is there a title you wanted to highlight um well i, when, I see notes so i know i you have i, I uh <laughs> you know i mean my first thought came to mind were, were were two films and i i wound up like just trying to be more clever than that but the the first two films that came to mind for me were bonnie and clyde yeah they roared off on what might easily have been a wild romantic lark Almost before they knew it, with the giggles still in their ears, they had bloodied up four states. Uh, and Zodiac. Yeah. Got any hard suspects? About uh, 90 an hour, come up to around 500. You got four crime scenes, not a single usable print. You can't think of this case in normal police terms. He's breaking the pattern. Uh, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, for, for m- me personally, it's sort of what Scott and I do hmm. in the sense that it was a it was a movie about two people that Beatty and uh and Benton and Newman and Arthur Penn sort of figure out a way to sort of like look at them in a different way mm-hmm. to look at the to mix tones that's also a thing that Scott and I do quite a bit where it's like you know they the Bonnie and Clyde they kill people but then there's a joke and there's a joke in the middle of them killing people, and then they go off in there, you know. And so it's a, it's a, the, the complexity of tone in that movie is something I, I, I really admire. Uh, yeah, so that sexuality was, is something yeah. I remember the first scene where they kind sure. of were meeting and the gun. And I ain't much of a lovable boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there's all that stuff. Michael J. Pollard, there's, there's so much good stuff. And at the, for the time, it felt very, you know, uh, it was a groundbreaking film. And yeah. um, uh, so that was one of the things I thought about. I thought about Zodiac, and, and uh, which I think is probably one of the best crime films of all time. Uh, and I, the reason I like that film quite a bit um, is... Uh, it's about not solving the case, yeah. which uh, everybody wants the narrative to be wrapped up. Mm. So particularly, and, then, and even more so in a in a in a crime piece, you want someone to solve the yeah. crime. You want catharsis, someone to, right? The you catharsis. Need you need them. You know, all the good guys finally figure it out. Even no matter what horrible things happen, they figure it out. And when that doesn't happen. 
that's what you see in the film Zodiac. That's what the, that the part of the movie of Zodiac is not solving the crime yeah. and what that does to uh, someone's soul. Yeah. And so these people's lives are completely have completely fallen apart because they they can't solve it. They can't yeah. fix it. They can't. They don't know the truth. And uh, uh, you know, years and years and years and years go by, and it's just like it haunts them. Yeah. And there's not an easy solution. So I, that I admire that movie a great deal. That movie actually. The character that Jake Gyllenhaal plays in that film the is, is uh, the guy who wrote the book that Autofocus right, is right. based on. Oh, yeah. Robert, oh. Robert Graysmith. Yeah. Right, Graysmith, yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's um, you know, he is, because uh, technically Bob Crane's murder was never solved either. It's sort of, yeah. it's a bit of Graysmith's. Uh, you know, genre that that he was a he was a, a you know a person up in the in the Bay Area, and he was fascinated by both these cases. Huh. Did you um, ever see the Zodiac Killer? The you know that's getting a re-release now. Uh, I I actually saw my it's on my TiVo because uh-huh. TCM uh, ran uh, a couple of months back. Yeah, I, I recorded from there. I've too, never um, I've never seen it. it it's uh, not an easy uh, not an easy watch. It's yeah, not yeah. a great movie. I remember when it came. I remember it came. I was a little kid. And I remember seeing the. Ads it came out the, when. Yeah, it was still going on. Correct. But the, uh, I was talking to someone from Agfa, and they were telling me the craziest part about it, which is at one of the screenings they would have a guy, a cop, right. in a box, and there was a thing where you'd enter a raffle, and the idea was he was comparing the handwriting oh, of each person inside the box, sure. wow. and the whole idea was we could right. actually catch the killer right. while we're doing that, and they right. never they had no leads. <laughs> right. Wow. And no also probably thing. because the guy who was doing that was the person who ran a <laughs> the popcorn concession. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he really wasn't analyzing anybody's. Um, Strange enough, the Zodiac Killer uh, uh, pops up in our in our in our in our Patty Hearst script that we're writing right now, only because the insanity of what was happening in San Francisco at that time with the zebra killing, the Zodiac killing, and and this uh, you know Haight Ashbury and the and everything you know was sort of like the the this was just, they do it very well in Zodiac. This city is just <laughs> it's ready to pop. Yeah. Um. But anyway, I didn't pick those. So my my pick for crime, which is a strange one, but is JFK. Oh. oh. Out of the corner of my eye. I saw a flash of light in bushes, and then shots rang out. The whole cloak and dagger stuff, you know. They called it Operation Mongoose. It's gonna be okay, Dave. You just talk to us on the record, and we'll protect you. And I guarantee it. You're so naive. Uh, and I yeah, was the singing, ultimate American yeah, crime, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And so that's something that I really thought is a crime film. And yeah. I was thinking that, you know, um, that uh, to me, that's a, just a movie that just is, is mind-boggling. Uh, it's, a, it's one of those movies where I couldn't make that movie. It's yeah. just like, you know, I so admire what Oliver pulled off in that film. And, and, you know, sort of talking about, you know, what we did with OJ, where we're trying to show for so many different characters. There's so many characters, so many perspectives, so many what-ifs about, I, you know, that, that movie is just... It's just it's just, it's a masterpiece, and and I uh, love the way that he, um, um, you know, he was he was stirring the pot, you know, he was stirring the pot in terms of like you know asking those questions of you know like like the the press came down on him pretty hard about like oh you're implying that Lyndon Johnson was behind the murder, and I don't think he really was implying that he was saying oh let's what if what if. Yeah. You know, if you don't ask those kind of questions, you're like, who is who stands to gain? Uh, you start, you know. So to me, he throws everything at the wall in that film, hoping. And and then there's even the scene with Mr. X, where Mr. X kind of says that to Kevin Costner, like, yeah, you you know, it's, it's sort of it's sort of basically saying, yeah, uh, the those New Orleans people probably didn't do it, but you you take the case, that's going to get people. 
talking. That's going to make the the truth be told. Somehow, something's going to have to come out of it. Huh. And so, um, I think that's a. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I think it's an important film and a great film. And, and Oliver was a huge influence on Scott and I uh, in our careers in that he was the pro- he produced The People vs. Uh, Larry yeah. Flint. Uh, but even before that, uh, it was just a... He was a guy, as we were beginning our careers, where we could look to and say he was, a, he was someone who was taking modern history, recent yeah. events, recent controversial events, and turning them into drama. He was doing, you know, I really admire another film he did called W, mm-hmm. which is like, which was, was came out when W was still yeah, president. You know, fresh, what I mean? yeah. he was actually trying to make movies literally ripped from the headlines. Where like, you know, this this is something that's still happening, still and going he hasn't on. Hasn't slowed down. I mean, he yeah. made Snowden, and then and then yes. a couple of days we're going to see him on yeah. screen with Putin, yeah, which looks outrageous. Like yeah, just sitting so there uh, so that I think Oliver is a is kind of a genius. Yeah, well, yeah. Citizen X is uh, Donald Sutherland, isn't it? Yes, that's yeah, right. Or the character, yeah, Mr. X, yeah. Mr. X yeah. is Donald Sutherland. I remember that well because he goes to New Zealand in the film, <laughs> and he's like, "I'm in New Zealand now." And I was like, "Oh, that's the first time I think I'd heard New Zealand mentioned on screen," which no, uh, right. is actually my my film. So this is a segue. Right. Uh, my film, which I, I, you know, there's a lot of ones I could have gone for, but I had to go for what I consider kind of like New Zealand's, uh, you know, grow, growing up there most of my life. Uh, New Zealand's blue velvet, in a sense, and you couldn't be more surprised that it came from Peter Jackson with Heavenly Creatures. Your daughter appears to have formed a rather unwholesome attachment to Julianne. We're not going to be separated. (laughs) I know what to do about Mother. We don't want to go to too much trouble. Some sort of accident uh the other film from 1994 uh right. <laughs> not the best one because ed right. woods uh, <laughs> but heavenly creatures you know we grew, we grew up watching his splatter films and this is a bigger leap than raimi sure raimi's leap to spider-man this was a leap that no one would have seen coming from you know brain dead yeah. uh and you know he, he had his fans but to take and a lot of it you know it's his wife's uh you know she just is really interested in the story this was a story she really wanted to tell um but christchurch is like this picturesque perfect New Zealand quiet town this is kind of my like my mother's era uh, and you know the idea that two girls got together and murdered one of their wives uh, you know was probably the most sensational thing that could happen there but mm. he like what you guys do I think in a, an extent is he said we are not like let's not make a movie about the trial and the murder which is what everyone mm-hmm. would want this to be let's make it about a friendship that's gone wrong right like this is a beautiful friendship where they these two people really connected and they're both outsiders they both sure. had a lot of sickness in their life that had a lot of problems at only like 15 once 14 once 15 when they meet and yet they create what i love about the film and i and i don't think he's topped and i don't think he necessarily ever will because no. the ability to tap into the um inside world that they create for themselves and get lost in and right. to the point where their parents are who, who come off as the villains of the film but are really just tr- concerned because they see their daughters getting lost together right, right. the lesbianism uh, stuff I don't know if that's like you know how apt it is but you know they, it's mm-hmm. a license that they're taking but uh, if you haven't the, some of the movies I want to mention may be more like oh yeah everyone knows that one but I feel like there's some movies where people just haven't really gone back to revisit and that film actually really holds up and he, it's all the things he, he does right but that the 
scale, epic scale, has kind of lost his voice. In my, in just in yeah. my opinion, because I really love his early career. Mm-hmm. Make you know, you make enough of the rings, and that is a big scale, hard to kind of sure. tell the tight story like you're talking. Uh, mm-hmm. So this film, I'm a huge fan of. I think uh, Melanie Linsky uh, yes. is inc- they're both incredible. Uh, Kate Winslet. Well, what's great about uh, is is her resurgence that you know that that Kate Winslet you know came yeah. out of that movie and became this international, international star, superstar yeah. and uh, and but Melanie's just sat around and and and, and became a working actress and kept on working kept on working and now she's you know she's I think she's the, one of the best people out there she's, yeah her and the Duke Plus Brothers show yeah. I thought was the, she was yeah. phenomenal in yeah. it uh, so the, 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 that that film like really rocked. It's always hard outside of small countries if you're you know in America. I know that film did well here, but when mm-hmm. you're from a small place like that, and a film like that or Once Were Warriors sure. pops up, it sure. it kind of it's it's like imagine living in America. If every single person in the whole country watched a movie that weekend, every single one is talking about your movie. Sure. And I feel like maybe something like People vs. OJ is sure. the closest you could get to that feeling. Yeah. And but everyone was talking about that movie, and everyone was blown away by it. And and it was and and themes were coming up about repression in that country and it was i thought that was you know phenomenal film uh you know totally worth and it was just an interesting side note that because they were so young when they were convicted and it's a brutal murder so you know it ends culminates in this absolutely like horrendous murder of a woman with a brick and a and a nylon stocking but yet you kind of when you get the news that part of their judgment is that they can't ever see each other again it's kind of it's heartbreaking so to feel that you to show that world and then take the world away from them you know, we empathize with them, not the criminal sure. justice system, for good or bad. I find that to be kind of fascinating. Um, but they, the side note was that I didn't know this at the time, but was that, you know, uh, is it whom? Yeah, whom, whom, Julie, whom, after the movie came out, you know, was revealed her alias, and she had become like one of the, you know, best selling crime novelists and mm-hmm. had been working for the last 20 years as a best selling author in England. You know, to think that you've gone from that to this totally different life. I think the other, uh, she was a Mormon, I think, living in uh, England, and her part, the other girl, they still hadn't seen each other, was living somewhere in America, I think. But right. just life keeps going after these these true stories happen. Like you said, that's, sure. we're only interested in that part when they're 15 years old. But there's, you know, 40 years on, sure. so much other things can happen. So that, that was my, my, my pick for crime because it just had an impact on me as well. Yeah, no, that's a great pick. I was thinking when you're talking about that movie and when it came out, I have a theory about um, movies that I think in the 90s in particular have gotten mm-hmm. lost. My pick is from the 90s also. But I don't know if it's because of the transition from VHS to DVD, the that some of those movies just... I mean, Edward is definitely one that has hung on for sure, but I, I kept coming across movies in doing this show... Mm-hmm. I kept coming across movies from the 90s that somehow people aren't talking about as much anymore. That mm-hmm. seems to be the decade. 80s is okay. People are into that. And the 2000s is mo- recent enough that people still seem to be remembering those, but the 90s seems to get lost. I don't know why. But um, my pick could go... We were talking about another category that you could almost call out is like contemporary oh, yeah. stories. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm going with The Insider. You cut the guts out of what I said. It was the time consideration. Time? Bullshit. You corporate lackey. Who told you your incompetent little fingers have the requisite skills to edit me? I'm trying to band-aid a situation here, and you're too dim to... Mike. Mike. Mike? Mike! Try Mr. Wallace. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which I'm going to call a crime film, but it's got so many things about it that you sure. could slot into any one of those categories. But um, I think it's probably my favorite Michael Mann film. Uh. And... I don't think I don't think he's made a better one for me. Yeah, I don't think so. And I was I was talking to Elric about it. I think there's something about the emotional element of that story 
um, that really hooks me. The, mm-hmm. the Russell Crowe performance in particular, um, I mean, obviously the idea is that he plays a scientist, I guess, who works for a tobacco company right. who finally decides that he wants to blow the whistle and, and try and hold them accountable for the idea that they are not trying to create uh, and doing everything they can to make cigarettes addictive right. using chemical processes and whatnot and, and lying on the stand various um, big tobacco uh, representatives of the company saying no we don't think this is addictive you know lying right. to people so anyway it's it has to do with that story and then of course Al Pacino plays a 60 minutes producer um, who's trying to sort of wrangle the story the whole time but what really got me this time and what got has gotten me every time but even more so now is this that again that emotional component the idea of what this kind of thing can do to a man and his family and how devastating it can be and how he plays it he plays it in this way that I can't even I don't know just to see him in the nice guys and then to see him in that again I'm like <laughs> wow man what a range the yeah, guy yeah. has well, well to have a director because I you know man's thrilling work but what he can bring to the biopic in that moment is that scene where the golf the scene where he's like teeing up uh, and and hitting a golf ball, yes. he a scene that is just kind of like could be a nothing scene in somebody's hands became like one of the most thrilling, tense kind of moments in the middle of a biopic, and that's like the scene I think of when I think of that movie now in the back of my head, which is you know what can these directors bring specifically to the table if they're going to tell that story? Because yeah. those films aren't you know, we don't remember them for emotion necessarily. No, there's moments in Thief where I think like that long dialogue scene at the diner table. I think there's some amazing kind of connective emotion there but most of those films are so cold yeah and distant like he's like uh, a kubrick in that yeah, way yeah. yeah but there's there's that a, movie also looks amazing oh yeah it's, it's dante spinati yeah, yeah it's beautiful gorgeous i mean it film. establishes on top of the emotion it establishes this incredible sense of paranoia right out of the gate there's some great scenes of um people like when russell crowe's walking out of his building with this briefcase full of then the camera is literally like right up on his shoulder almost in his ear in this way that's just like, wow, that's just really creepy. And, th- and there's a lot of shots like that. I feel like this movie is sort of playing off of the paranoid thrillers of the 70s in a lot of ways, although I've never heard Michael Mann talk about being specifically influenced by those, but I can't help but think of, you know, all the President's Men, Parallax View, all that stuff. Yeah, it feels it feel, definitely feels like that. You feel like it's there? Yeah, yeah. so I don't know. This one just, and on top of that, it's got just a ridiculous cast outside of Russell Crowe and um, Al Pacino. You've got... Um, What's his name from Sound of Music? Why can't I think of it right now? He's in the Sound of Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Christopher Plummer. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Christopher Plummer as... Um, I was about to say Dreamscape. Well, yeah, but it's also got Rip Torn, Philip Baker Hall, Stephen Tobolowski. Yeah. I just noticed uh, Wings Hauser in a short <laughs> yeah. scene. It was really great. When's so the there's Wings now I think, When are you doing Wings Now, biopic? I think <laughs> technically uh, um, uh, uh, my connection to that movie is the... Uh, is the character Norm Macdonald plays in The People vs. Larry Flint yeah. is basically Don Hewitt, who, who is who Al Pacino was playing in. Oh, uh, really? Because uh, wow. it was, um, you know, it was uh, Larry Flint is the one who gave 60 Minutes the DeLorean, the DeLorean cocaine tape. You know, oh my so gosh. so that's uh, so it was him dealing with a with a uh, we we never name him Don Yude in the in the film uh. itself, but it's, he's a he's a, a, a correspondent. He's a, basically a producer for for uh, for sixty minutes, and I believe <laughs> you was the person who actually did that. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, to a category you know nothing about showbiz. Showbiz, <laughs> showbiz. Um, well, showbiz. Uh, yeah, there's so many different showbiz ones. I'm. Um, uh, I was torn. There's there. Uh, I'm going with kind of an obscure one. 
uh, only because I want people to see it, and, mm. and I haven't rewatched it, so I can't really. I'm not going to be able to talk that much in depth with it. Uh, is um, I'm, uh, a movie called The Seven Little Foys. Let's have Yankee Doodle Dandy. Don't you ever dance to any music that wasn't written by Cohen? There isn't any. Oh, I do not Which even know. Is, Bob uh, Hope movie. It's a Bob Hope oh, man, movie. Bob Hope made two. Um, Two biopics over his uh-huh. career. One's I think Bo James, which he plays a mayor of New York City, and that's more of a serious film. And this one is uh, this one's about a, a, an old vaudevillian, Eddie Foy Jr., who uh, um, who's uh, who had a, a wife and seven kids, and the wife dies, and and the guy doesn't want to um, and sort of give up the road and give up vaudeville, and so he basically makes the children part of the act. Uh-huh. And um, it's a it's 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 a Bob Hope film, but it's kind of also ground. It's, it's trying it's trying it's Bob Hope's Oscar picture. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. It's trying to be uh, Yankee Doodle <coughs> Dandy. In fact, even uh, uh, Cagney Cagney shows up in the film as uh, George M. Cohen, and they do uh, uh, him and Bob Hope do like a dance number together, and that's probably one of the highlights of the film. Huh. But it's a it's a it's a quite charming movie. It's uh, directed by uh, Mel Shavelson, who was an old old Hope writer, but he wrote a thousand things. Um, uh, and Jack Rose was his writing partner, and I believe that was the first one that Melvin Shelton uh, directed. Um, uh, but he was just one of those guys who made like kind of studio comedies for the next thirty years of his life. I th- uh, you know, I, when I was growing up, a, a movie called "The War Between Men and Women" with Jack Lemmon and Barbara Harris. That I was a big fan of. Uh, kind of a thinly veiled thing about uh, James Thurber. Uh, yeah. But uh, um, uh, I think it's a really entertaining movie. It, it's interesting that. Um, this is, comes from the uh, time period where they were sort of making a lot of movies about entertainers. They were, they were sort of like the, they were sort of the, uh, the way the Hollywood musical morphed in say the 50s was to do sort of biographies of of uh, entertainers. Yeah. So you have like things like the Jolson story. You have uh, there's a lot almost every Eddie Duchin. We yeah. yeah. I, that, I yeah. thought about putting that one on. Uh, almost every uh, yeah. um, songwriting team. Yeah. Got got a got a movie because it'd be like they would want to include all the numbers. So you know, so uh, you know, Rogers and Hart have their own movie, and 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 and, and uh, uh, um, uh, like, uh, the, but everybody. So they're all these sort of like it's, it's basically this, the the there would be a joke about it was the 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 genre was kind of, and then I wrote. Because it would be like the two guys like in their office trying to figure out how to, <laughs> they're having troubles with their wives or whatever, and all of a sudden some they say, "Oh, how about this?" And then there's, there's a lot of scenes where guys are writing popular f- songs, and then they burst into the songs. And so, um, I, I always I remember reading Kenneth Anger's uh, Hollywood of Babylon and right. thinking to myself, "How has no one done a, the full Busby Berkeley?" Right. Like, because his story, he I mean he was yeah, like living was at home with his mom, yeah. and it's very incestual. Like, but that I don't. I, right. As far as I know, no one's attacked that one yet. The people are, are talking they, about okay. that. Okay. <laughs> right, so, so uh, there are people talking. I about feel like right there's now. a lot of good fodder. Hollywood battle. Yes. <laughs> Whether yes. how much of it's yes. true, I have no idea. I met the Anger recently. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's still uh, he's still in Hollywood. He's still he was eating. At, he was at a coffee shop. Oh, okay, I've and seen the him. The guy at the runs coffee shops. Me like that's Kenneth Anger over there. Do yeah, I meet him. Yeah, uh, <laughs> of course. Yeah, that was true. a major one. That was a major thing for me. Yeah. The Hollywood Babylon. I mean, oh yeah, Hollywood me too. Ba- you me know, too, yeah. Hollywood Babylon. I think had a big uh, influence on on Scott and I in terms yeah. of like you know that sort of underbelly of Hollywood and, and that you know that, that all that stuff is great. Yeah, no, incredible stories. Uh, I, well, this is the one that totally could have been on my crime right. list, and it's a movie that actually watching it again. It's one of the few I did get to rewatch. I didn't think it was actually sleazy enough, as sleazy as I felt it should be in that Star Eighty by Bob Fosse. That's funny. I'm uh, sorry about that too. I have this feeling about Dorothy. She's going to be a big star. They're going to give me 
$1,000 for having my picture taken. Dorothy is every man's fantasy. Sit down. Dorothy, you just can't let him do this to you. If you want her, pal, you can have her. But you're going to have to pay. Star 80, rated R. Yeah, I, I thought about it. I Watching it again, yeah. the thing that made me want to rewatch it is Eric Roberts. And that held up to be the thing that really pops on the screen. I feel his performance just electric. Yeah. It's just like it's pulsating through from start to end. What I felt that watching it this time, for one, it's so close to when it happened. It's like, I, yeah. think, a, it's, I think it's coming out two or three years after right. the murder, which means it's in production probably a year after. Yeah. So that always, I feel like maybe some stuff might be being held back or just a little. It, it's surprisingly, even though it might seem salacious to people, I was sitting there going, yeah, but I feel like with this guy, maybe it needed to be even nastier. There's a great uh, moment where he, the, the they imply this weird uh, contraption, this kind of weird desk chair thing that he probably gynecological right. that right. he's created, that's, that's, and they give him a weird look, and he's like, huh, you know. And at the end, of course, you know, they don't really show it in the finale, but it's you know, he was messing with her body right. after death right. with this thing. So it's about, uh, Dar- but for those who don't know, because I feel like this movie isn't that well known now, but mm-hmm. outside of cinephiles, is right. uh, Dar- Play Playboy uh, Playmate of the Year yeah, from Dorothy Stratton, 1980. Yeah, Dorothy Stratton, uh, and her, she had a you know she was just working at a ice cream uh, place and basically a guy who was you know had a finger in a lot of different pies uh, borderline pornographer type, you know basically a guy who could get liked to kind of basically a con man of a type but I don't want to you know cut him down to just that he, I, technically he started Chippendales uh, I didn't know that until mm. <laughs> researching this but she, you know this guy looked at her and said I could see her as a playmate but she was totally naive and very innocent mm-hmm. uh, girl uh, and they chart her that's uh, what's the actress from um, Marielle Hemingway and she she really is pretty phenomenal yeah. in the naivete of this role but as it charts their relationship but what the reason I put it here instead of um, instead of crime in terms of showbiz is it feels like it's about that kind of blind narcissism of wanting to achieve fame but not the thing that you become famous for like well, skipping that step well I think yeah so the uh, yeah I mean I think that's what the, the the plot of the film is about a guy who wants to be he yeah. wants to be part of show business. I mean, he's constantly. Yeah. I mean, my memory of the film is him running around the um, Playboy Mansion saying, yeah. "It's Telly here. It's Telly here, my yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, because he thinks he's yeah. friends with Telly Savalas, he's and he like, wants Hefner to accept yeah, him. Basically, accept him. so that's what it's all about. I mean, I have a weird relationship with that movie. Is is I remember seeing it. I saw it before it came out, yeah. and had a violent anti-reaction yeah. to it where I thought it was exploitive and I was yeah. kind of like wondering why the fuck was he, did he choose to make this movie and make it you know I wouldn't I definitely wouldn't say he's, that guy is sympathetic because he's a, yeah. he's a, he's a oh, total no, creep no, but, pretty but but that being said it was also I feel anytime you put a person in a movie there is a, a sympathy I had a very violent anti-reaction yeah. to this movie and then I saw it a few years after that and I had just yeah, I was like whoa wait a second I missed a boat on that that's yeah. really it's quite it's a quite brilliant film well, uh, it doesn't work yeah. 100% there's, 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 there's something missing it, if it's it does have a slightly, I mean, it's shot by Sven Nyquist, you yeah. know, Bergman's yeah. DP, it, but it almost has a slight TV quality, but everything's heightened. Yeah. That it, The performance of Roberts is just the thing that's kind of still gluing it together. Right. But what's interesting is he doesn't seem that, you would think it's about obsessive love and you would think it's about his obsession about her, but it really isn't. He doesn't even mind that she was sleeping around. It's when she, her fame and star is taking off and his isn't going with Correct. her that he needs to possess her. Right. And then the way to stop right. that is to kill her. And it was, you know, brutal murder. But the thing I was curious about, because one of the reasons I started the show asking you the questions about the legalities of using people's names was Peter Bogdanovich was dating her at the time and it was her movie, uh, Then They All Left, uh, that he was, uh, yeah, they all left, yeah, yeah. They all left as, uh, that she was starring at 
at the time, but they changed his name to be somebody else. Yeah. And there's a couple of other characters. something. Yeah, uh, yeah, Cliff yeah. Robertson plays yeah. Hefner in a yeah. very strange term. Yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> it's kind of fun. But I was wondering, like, so is that saying you, you sometimes you just have to kind of... I, I, I'm a little baffled by that yeah. one, too. I'm sure... Uh, I'm sure he could have used Bogdanovich's yeah. name. I don't know why he didn't. I'm yeah. assuming that Bogdanovich said, don't use my name or threatened in some way. I, I don't know any facts about any yeah. of that, but uh, I'm assuming that there was some, you know, if someone's shaking a fist at you, yeah. you sometimes you say, all right, fine, I'll, I'll step away, but <laughs> right. it's so clearly And it was so close to the time, so you almost wonder if the guy was still in mourning and you're making a film about a murder of this I mean, girlfriend. I mean, still in mourning, so, yeah, you know. It's pretty, the one cool thing I did, I did uh, Carol Baker plays her mom, yeah. trying to shield her from the innocence, and when I was thinking about that, I wondered if it was like you know, I get this kind of Tarantino casting, but the idea that she was Baby Doll, and Baby Doll's a similar kind of character, sure. a naive, you know, innocent character who's thrust, you know, being used by men, sure. and, and uh, kind of, sure. kind of interesting. But I do think this isn't as good as all that jazz. It's not Fosse's best, best film, but We're it is an be interesting. Talking about that in a little yeah, bit. it's <laughs> an interesting, Keep moving. Keep moving. <laughs> interesting, dirty yeah. film. Right, <laughs> um, uh, there is a. There are so many of these, like you said, Larry. Yeah. There's just a ton. Um, I went with one that's also kind of obscure and is in a place of slight limbo as far as home video release. It's called American Hot Wax. It's from oh, American Hot Wax, yeah. great. Yeah. Great movie. I think I'm, that's a shame that movie's not better known. One more demonstration and I'll close your show. Oh, Look, you can close the show. You can stop me. But you're never going to stop rock and roll. How'd you know that? Yeah, I mean, I, obviously it has right. a lot to do with... It's basically the story of DJ Alan Freed. Right. Uh, who supposedly coined the term rock and roll right. was a DJ out of Cleveland, I think, when he was getting going and and put on what was supposed to be one of the first rock and roll shows. Yeah. And the story is kind of about him working as a DJ, setting up that show. It climaxes with the show, right. but I mean, he discovered a lot of artists. And there's a it's wall to wall music like yeah. American Graffiti or something like that. And just a great lead performance from Tim McIntyre. Oh name. yeah, I mean it's a really it's a star-making, fantastic performance, and uh, it's a shame that movie's not better known. Yeah, I mean, I had to watch it on YouTube, because right. I think right. because of all that wall-to-wall music... Right. That's probably what it is. It's, I think that's hanging up, yeah. a, up an official home video yeah. release, although... I although, at the time, here's the thing, I mean, I remember the movie came... The movie was a flop. Yeah. The movie was not well-received at all, critically or commercially. I don't know why that movie was not... It was treated kind of shabbily. I went up seeing it like as a... Second feature at a drive-in somewhere. Oh wow! And even like even I think I talked to, um, uh, you know, uh, I'm friends with Lorraine Newman who is in the film. She plays, uh, she plays. Uh, uh, one of the songwriters. Yeah, she plays Carol King. Yeah. Oh god, that's she right. She plays Carol totally King. Forgot about that. A young Carol King. And you know, I was like, hey, American Hot Wags, and she was just kind of surprised that like someone would bring that one up, you know, because because no one does. Yeah. No. I mean, I think as far as I know, it only got one home video release and maybe a. Like a laser disc, early laser disc release, mm-hmm. exactly. but it's been disappeared since then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a really good story. I, I think as these stories go, um, it's it's interesting. Yeah. Floyd Mutrux, the director, yeah. did a lot of interesting stuff in the seventies. Aloha, Bobby and Rose. Yeah. He did uh, what the Hollywood, um, the one with New Bomb Turk in it. I can't remember right now. Um, but yeah, he also um, you know his, his his last bunch of years, Mutrix has been uh, doing sort of stage shows. That are sort of very American hot wax. He's sort of like early, early rock and roll stage shows. I'm, I'm assuming searching for the the Jersey Boys kind of kind of pot of gold. But there's a couple. I saw one. I mean, maybe he was the only one. But it was it was fairly good. But yeah. it, it was, so like he's you know he's trying to create that. It was about girl groups, I think, and and, and um, 
I mean, he's an interesting guy. Yeah, it just has a really interesting fascination with music from right. that period, right. so it comes through in that. Right. Uh, the next category was, I believe, my favorite one, the one I had the most trouble limiting, which is postmodern, because I guess uh, a lot of stuff, including some of the stuff you guys right. could, could be considered, that depends how you want to use yeah. the term. Sure. Uh, I, had, I had tons. I, I ended up actually having two I'll end up mentioning but briefly. But right. how were you viewing postmodern? Well, postmodern to me was uh, people who don't play by the rules. And yeah, I think you could... Technically, <laughs> if you wanted to make a case for it, you yeah. probably do. You could probably do our films, but I would say do you know like something like Ed Wood has that turns the sort of the that turns the genre onto on its head. I think Man on the Moon seems to me like sure, very outside of, the box. Yes, in terms Man, of Man on the Moon. Yeah, Man on the Moon uh, is definitely that. In that, in that, uh, I remember Milos uh, saying this at one point, saying um, it's. Uh, it's so bizarre because you know more about Andy Kaufman before you see the film. <laughs> you, know, you walk out, <coughs> you walk into the theater saying like, "Oh yeah, I know Andy Kaufman. I like him. He's Latka. He's a, you know, he's, a, yeah. he's Mighty Mouse. That guy's yeah. pretty good." You walk out like, "I don't know anything about this guy. <laughs> what the fuck That's was funny. that?" And so it was a weird movie where you yeah. know less about the person and you leave the theater yeah. than you do going in. So definitely, I think Man on the Moon. You're, you're probably funny. right. That is probably our most yeah. our most postmodern. I went, um, I went in a, a, a you know. A, more postmodern y way, uh, I chose a film called uh, 32 Short Films about Glenn Gould. Uh-huh. Yeah. But he said that he wanted, uh, he didn't, he would like to be like Huckleberry Finn and come to his own funeral because he didn't think that there would be people who came. He didn't think that the world loved him like they did. Which like I, I think is a terrific, terrific movie. I had not, I did not get a chance to rewatch it before the podcast. But um, for those who don't know it, it's about uh, the classical pianist uh, Glenn Gould, and instead of taking um, uh, an approach where they just simply, you know, tell his life story or mm-hmm. tell a section of his story, they do it in, um, as the title says, thirty-two short films. So they'll just take an aspect, and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll present. Uh, you know, just that little segment, and so, and, and I, I find it's. I'm surprised it hasn't been copied, mm. uh, um, because I feel that that you actually you get to know almost more about him as opposed to having to having to go through all the trouble of biographical information of going through. You know, the, you know, then 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 he did this, and then that happened, and then he was star rose and the star collapsed. It's like this is more about like how how he tuned the piano, and then he about his relationship with Bach, or then, then they'll do things like documentary. Uh, one, a couple more documentary, like animation. So so they're able to sort of get to the more the the truth about who mm. Glenn Gould is, rather than dealing with the sort of uh, dramatic dram- yeah, like oh, yeah. then he left his wife right. or whatever it <laughs> yeah. is. You know, so it's it's like it's really going. Um, uh, and a lot of it's about his work, yeah. which is one of those things too. Where um, I think that's something that Scott and I really identify with is, is when we make a movie about these people, we make it about their work. Yeah. We make it about the you know a lot of times when you see a biography, they're telling you the story, you know the story is behind the scenes, but it's more like that's it's it's it's, uh, it's they they forget to tell you why this person. Is interesting, you know. They, they, they. Uh, so we always we get into the minutia of how art gets created, and I think that's when this this, this movie does in a very good way. It's showing you different aspects of of Glenn Gould. Yeah, I mean, I think well, the fun thing about postmodern is that you can the things like I, I didn't pick the uh, Bob Dylan biopic, but yeah. I know you had mentioned in your yeah. notes. And it's like watching that, even the parts that don't work for that, I'm still when I'm watching it. I am still glad they chose to present it like this instead yeah. of a traditional right. way because I just don't care about the – I didn't need a I walk the line version of Bob Dylan's story, whereas right. watching um, Kate Blanchett in those scenes, yeah, she's 
astounding yeah. in those parts. Yeah. You know? it's just, I mean, it's exciting. I the guess. 32 short films is sort of like uh, if you went and saw a movie about Glenn Gould and you came home and <laughs> you couldn't get to sleep, so you actually just started clicking on YouTube and like, oh, well, oh there's Glenn Gould in Paris. So then you click on, oh, 32 like, videos on this yeah, channel. Yeah, yeah, th- yeah exactly. And so you click around like, oh, well, that. And then he's yeah. like, why didn't they include this? This is much more interesting than the movie was. You know, right. so it's sort of that. It's that, yeah. that enough, it was before YouTube, but when I was when I was thinking about this time, I was like, that's what I know that's what people did um, with our with our with the OJ show is they would they would watch the episodes and then I think they would just they would they initially thought they were like fact checking but they would start doing them and clicking and clicking and clicking it was before Made in America came out and so they didn't have like one source of all the clips and so it, they, you know they, they became more interested by looking at the real things and comparing them to our show and so I, I, I that that also oh, I thought about that yeah I hadn't thought about that uh, the the one I picked is actually a film that I, I thought was one of the most uh, mesmerizing three hour movies I've ever seen and I feel like in America has almost no profile at all where I saw it it's directed by the great Peter Watkins who made so many you know. Mm-hmm. From the commune to uh, what's the one with the punishment park? Uh, it's actually about the the biopic, which could sound really dry, about Edvard Munch. In Munch's diaries appear these words: "I greeted the girlfriend, laughed a little. The pale one smiled a bit too. May I introduce myself, painter? I take the liberty. I want to paint you. I bought half a bottle of port and." went to the studio with them. Uh, And it's a movie that, on surface, if you just watch a clip on YouTube, you'll go, oh, God, that sounds terrible. I, I, besides the fact I was always a big fan of Among Spading, like yeah. a lot of people, it's one of the most mesmerizing things I've ever seen in my life. It's basically Peter Watkins taking cinema verite approach visually to a period piece costume drama, so it looks like almost Bergman or something, about Edward Munch when he's young and sickly and falling in love with the, you know, his family members and people dying. Right. He's, so you're watching that that style. So it's a very strange uh, visual style in the first place. Uh, there's things, uh, things you notice are like weird slow zooms in, uh, characters looking directly at camera, like for long periods because right. it's like as if a documentary crew is there uh, but then the weird part is so they're speaking in uh, Norwegian and Norwegian language and then a British voice is talking over in voiceover as almost like a Richard Attenborough documentary on wildlife saying this is the period where he did this and you're like what the fuck yeah, it, yeah. it's really dislocating initially and then it becomes I, I think it's one of the best like Bio- biographies of an artist I've ever seen and by, I just found the whole thing like and I, I didn't see it again for this I watched a couple of clips right. but when I saw it I remember just being like elated by how it felt and you have oh, to be in the right head I've never seen it so that's so uh, it's, called, it's actually called it's called Edward, Edward Monk, Monk yeah. and it's uh, out by Eureka put it out oh nice um, and it's you know it, it's it's basically charts you know really his whole period but it's the kind of romantic elements that are really fun because he had a lot of fucked up kind of love. Right. I think it was a sister he had a big thing with at one point and a lot of rejection and melancholy like his paintings are. But then it'll, and it also is one of the best films I've seen that actually, like you were just talking about, about the work. Because while you're seeing him in these romantic entanglements, it will then have him painting. And then the voiceover will sometimes tell you some insight about how that one thing right. maybe changed how he did a stroke. Right. That depression of the girl rejecting him. And suddenly it brought his work alive. So it so it really also is a great portrait of what an artist is going through. So it, it's a it's a strange little movie, but it couldn't be more, more postmodern. I mean, the, phys- the visual things they're doing don't make sense for a period piece and yet it completely works because Peter so Watkins cool. is a pretty out there director in the first place I think his work's always been pretty exciting in that way um, and then there's one I won't go into too much but I kind of wanted to bring it up because 
I, I don't know. I think you guys will know about it, but I feel like a lot of people never saw this. And it's, it's one of the most visually lush movies I've ever seen. It, and the reason it's different postmodern is because it's about a uh, writer who becomes the character of a movie, but probably the rest isn't at all autobiographical. It becomes a fiction movie, and that's uh, The Mystery of Rampo. He is one of the world's most famous writers. The characters he creates have a life of their own. And when they call out to him, he must answer. Now, he will cross the line between the real world and the world of his imagination. About, did you ever hear that one? No. It was an MGM title that came out the same time as Suture, and those two movies, I had a friend who was in charge of video wow. release I at the time, Suture. and he said those two movies both uh, basically disappeared at the time because it was right when MGM was going under. Sure. And so these two g- little gems, but Mystery of Rampo is about the Japanese version of Edgar Allan Poe, who's named Idogawa Rampo, and mm-hmm. it was meant to be a play on Poe's name it's later, you know, mm-hmm. obviously in the 60s, and uh, he was very famous for his crime detective fiction. This film opens with a 10-minute Miyazaki-esque animation so you're in this animated scene and then it becomes david lynch for the next hour and a half uh, once it's in live action it's one of the most visually sumptuous movies i've ever seen in my life it's just you'll watch and go holy shit how how does everyone not know about this movie and the reason i just wanted to at least mention it because in terms of postmodern it's going even further where it's going okay we're going to take the real writer he has his book of his band at the start there's a story Mm -hmm. that's too much for the japanese government and they ban it and through the banning of this book he kind of starts investigating something to do with it and it opens it leads to basically him reimagining himself kind of like lost highway i guess as this very good-looking, you know, kind of detective-type mm-hmm. character. So then you get it's basically two narratives start to unfold. So it really isn't necessarily based on a true story, but I loved the way they took a real. It'd be like as sure. if you took Edgar Allan Poe and put him in that, sure. even though that sure. film wasn't. You know. yeah, I actually thought when you're when you're building up to it, I thought you were going to say adaptation. I yeah, no, I did too, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, no, I mean, Mr. <laughs> no, but there's <laughs> about a writer who gets involved in his own work, and it's like, oh, well, you know, oh, adaptation. Well, that's an interesting. But uh, Amazumi. Okay, anyway, right. I think for people, this is a, there is a DVD. I, I look. Before I came on eBay, I, I noticed some for like you know ten bucks. They still exist, but this is a Blu-ray dessert waiting to happen. And it's and it's an exciting film to discover. You say, there are still some movies out there that are under your radar, and you watch sure. it and go, "How the fuck?" It, it's just so visually lush and and interesting. I think you I think you'd probably at least find it interesting. Cool. So I just want to at least yeah. throw that out there for people. Right. Well, from the obscure to yeah. the not so obscure, <laughs> uh, but I do have a connection to my previous choice in that it's a Cleveland-based movie, and that's American Splendor from 2003. Mm -hmm. What movie could possibly be worth driving 260 miles round trip for? It's a new film called Revenge of the Nerds. It's about a group of nerd college students who are being picked on all the time by the jocks. So they decide to take revenge. Uh, So what you're saying is you identify with those nerds? Yes. I consider myself a nerd. And this movie has uplifted me. Um, which is about the underground comics hero Harvey Pekar, sure. who um, who wrote the comic of the same name about himself. Uh, and he's a file clerk uh, in Cleveland. And um, it, he famously knew Robert Crumb, got Robert Crumb to illustrate his comics early on, and that sort of helped it take off. But he just kept, he stayed as a file clerk the whole time. What's interesting about the movie is that Paul Giamatti plays... Uh, Picar, but they actually intercut interviews and voiceover from Picar himself. Um, Letterman, all yeah, those Letterman appearances. The Letterman appearances. I mean, he became famous for going on Letterman and just sort of aggravating Dave sure. to the point where he actually got kicked off the show finally. Um, 
But it's a fascinating story, and I remember seeing the movie around 2003, and um, when I met my wife in 2005, she had uh, her son, my stepson, was like six. When he got to be about eight years old, I was like, I think he was getting into comics. I'm like, I'm going to try and slide this in there and see what he thinks. He totally loved American Splendor, read all of the um, omnibus or whatever the Mm -hmm. compilation was, but I'd never shown him the movie, and uh, he just graduated from high school, and I actually on the day of his graduation I had the day off I'm like you know we should watch because of the show and whatever I was like we should watch this movie you've never seen this movie and and I just forgot how much I love it as a story of a man but uh, an inspiring story about sort of finding that thing that you want to create that maybe mm-hmm. you're meant to create and doing that and running with it and not kind of giving a shit about what anybody says about right. it you know I right. just think that's that's a really powerful thing you know and a lot of these biopics can be inspirational but for me not necessarily in the same way as this one is artistically right. you know what i mean right. i just really dug that it's a certain movie and great performances oh uh, all the, around the woman is fantastic hope davis that. hope davis is amazing in that movie yeah she's fantastic right. and then the other thing is really neat is not only is harvey picar in the movie himself but his wife who is portrayed in the film his best friend this nerdy guy which is another great performance by um what's his name for 30 rock i can't judah friedlander right is absolutely on point as this nerdy guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's Gosh, so I, I haven't revisited the movie since Th- 30 Rock is on, so I forgot that was a, that was him. Of it's course that's unrecognizable. Him. Yeah, I told yeah. my son, I'm like, this is the guy from 30 Rock. He was like, no way. No, <laughs> no, no, no. But anyway, I just, I forgot how much I love that mm-hmm. movie. Um, it's funny. The uh, I was expecting. I was expecting one of you guys to do Ken Russell. I, I, was <laughs> I, was I thought about it. I thought about like uh, like Listomania or something yeah. like that's going to be going to be yeah. one of these things. But because uh, uh, the, the, he definitely was a guy who, do, who turned people's lives yeah, into crazy. Ken Russell yeah. movies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Valentino's a crazy one, but Listomania the is lovers, yeah. yeah, they're all yeah. yeah. They get they get crazier as they go along. Yeah, yeah. You know they they yeah. Um, the other one I thought about the, this, this was uh, Secret Honor. I almost thought about oh, doing I that. I almost did yeah. that too, but yeah. I was yeah. like, I didn't know where to slot it. I guess sure. I could. that would be post. I mean, yeah, the, no, the, he's the, talking the, to Cameron. You're right. Yeah, you're totally. It's a yeah, monologue, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a great but, movie. Yeah. Uh, the next one was uh, you know one you suggested uh, in an email, which was the one I had the tr- hardest time finding a film that I wanted to talk about because they, they all seem so obvious to me. Which is Thinly right. Veiled. This idea right. of it's not a direct biopic, right. but it's a Thinly Veiled. I mean, it's right. Susan Cain's. Yeah, it makes total sense. Yes. But uh, what, um, were, what were you thinking behind this? One? Uh, well, no, it's just that uh, um, I was thinking about the just in general. Like a lot of times, people always think of the people's life story, and they tell you about the and then they mention a film that actually technically isn't someone's life story, but they they seem to it's almost like print a legend. Yeah. And Citizen Kane's like the obvious version where it's a, and uh, um, uh, you know another uh, you know, Badlands I think is yeah. you know maybe yeah. one of the greatest movies of all time, yeah, and great, it fits, yeah. fits into this. Um, when you're um, that closer, say with Kane. If he's why why not go all the way in his case? That's 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 what Scott and I always say when yeah. when you know when when people try to fictionalize it's like why why bother you right. know a little bit of that like why not just do stark weather right, right. And, you know I think sometimes it gives <clears throat> it gives people permission to put their art on top of it so they don't have to right. be they don't have to they don't have to worry about that truth. Thing right. that, that like you know we have to we have to be very careful about it. They, they feel more comfortable and and, and uh, uh, it's 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 about the, the dramatic piece as opposed to oh no 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 he they, he murdered that person in that town and then that wasn't until like eight weeks later and you have to deal with all that kind of juggling. Some people just aren't good at that. And some people just don't aren't that interested in it. But they like the idea of 
two young lovers and the lamb who, right. who take off. Um, I like that you said early on that that's, that's the part that actually interests you in these, is yes. going into the truth and the yes. difficulty of that and making that fun. Yeah. That's an interesting angle, which yeah. I think a lot of people I love think. it. Uh, one I, the, I picked uh, is sort of a, a spin on a, on, on, on a spin, and it was a movie that we mentioned earlier, is um, All That Jazz. Yeah. I try to give you everything I can give. Oh, you give all right. Presents, clothes. I just wish you weren't so generous with your cock. That's good. Maybe I can use that sometime. Which, because not only is it thinly veiled, it's auto. It's an autobiography, yeah. which is like almost unheard of in a in a movie. No one, no one really makes an auto autobiography, and it's so closely. Uh, it's almost shocking that he didn't just call uh, the character uh, <laughs> Bob Fosse yeah. because he's clearly making. You know, it's Joe Gideon. I think is the name of the character, but he's clearly. You know, there's a, he's making a movie about a comic, which is clearly uh, uh, Lenny. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, uh, and it even stars the guy who played Lenny on Broadway. He's right. making a he's making a Broadway show, which is clearly Chicago, and part and parts of Pippin. You know, and he's and so it's like it's like it's like you really are sort of watching Bob Fosse's, uh, uh, you know, uh, the life unfold, and 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 he's done it as this sort of uh, you know. Uh, it feels both very realistic, but also has these kind of impressionistic music numbers yeah. and uh, an amazing performance from Roy Scheider. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a really a fantastic performance, and uh, you know, actually, he wasn't even the first. Uh, you know, Richard Dreyfuss was going to yeah. play that part, and for some reason, fell out of it at the last second, and, oh, and Scheider took over. Um, but it's a great performance, and um, you know, it's full of just little tiny. If you know, the more you know about Fosse, the more interesting. Um, uh, uh, the bits and pieces are, you yeah. know, and actually, Anne Ranking, who's Fosse's girlfriend, is playing basically Anne Ranking in <laughs> her film. You know, uh, uh, you know, the other character is clearly Gwen Verdon, and um, uh, you know, there are even little details like there's a the uh, number "Take Off with Us," where he the uh, composer comes in and has this like little funny number and he turns it into a, a, a sexual romp and it totally you know offends the 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 uh the composer that's actually that's Stephen schwartz from pippin it's a song called love uh, love song which was this very lovely ballad that uh, he wanted inserted in the show and and fossey made turn it into an orgy <laughs> and, so, and that's wow. why that's what that's what take off with wow. us is and has that and has a you know it's a it's all about his uh, flirtation with death, and the yeah, fact that yeah. you know Fosse uh, had these heart attacks, and and yeah. uh, um, and clearly, you know, uh, for a guy who died young, you're sort of watching a movie about a guy making a movie about a guy who dies young yeah. before he's dead. I mean, the movie ends with a, a body bag, yeah. ends with a musical number that leads to a body bag, and that closing musical number is one of the great musical numbers yeah. of all time, where Ben Vereen is playing a variation on um, on Sammy Davis Jr. welcoming, uh, um, you know, uh, Bob Fosse into the into death. It's a, and, yeah. and, and, and Jessica Lang plays death herself, you know, it's a, he's a, a, a woman that he's been flirting with on and off his whole life. It's, you know, it's, it's a massive ego trip. You know, some people, the people who don't like all that jazz is because they think, oh, Jesus Christ, this guy's just, yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, it's so much, it's so in your face, but I think yeah. it's a terrific, terrific movie. Yeah, no, I feel like people don't talk about it nearly enough. Enough. No, yeah. I mean, especially consider how well known Roy Scheider is yeah. for Jaws. A lot of people, I mean, I would say a lot of people don't 
go further out into his filmography out there. Oh, yeah, because that, that and Sorcerer, to me, is two right. best performances. I mean, I he's think they're both seven incredible. ups. You got just yeah. tons of stuff. You yeah. But, but that's one of his best. Uh, yeah, well, it's funny you were saying that I didn't end up picking it, but in terms of thinly veiled autobiographies, I, it kept on crossing my mind that Eraserhead is almost a thinly veiled well, autobiography funny. when you really think about <laughs> yeah, every funny. detail in it sure. is built from his real life and his real fear of having his uh, his daughter. But uh, I went for something a little bigger. I mean, obviously, a movie like Boogie Nights is, a, is one that sure. I particularly love, that kind of thinly veiled. But I actually went for um, one that when I first saw it, it, I really just enjoyed it. I haven't seen it since, and I just thought it was so much fun, which is To Die For. To be a star. You've got to be able to do things that ordinary people wouldn't do. Was the opportunity she would kill for. <sighs> okay. <laughs> and that's exactly what she did. I don't think I need to tell you that today was a hot one. Uh, which I think mm-hmm. is one of sure. Just Van Sant's best films because it's it's so much of it is almost the opposite of what he is kind of known for. And it's a bigger film. It's really, for me, at least, we talked about uh, election. Yes, at this point, we talked about election on a previous episode uh, on high school mm-hmm. high school films. And I feel like it kind of set that kind of tone. Uh, it has a very a very similar protagonist to election in Nicole Kidman. Uh, the, but the big difference in the stories, uh, and, also, and also like with Christine last year, mm-hmm. is this very grounded, very realist, painfully realistic version of uh, a story, you know, biopic of a woman and, and show right. media and kind of working her way up. This is like the complete opposite. It's it's big, it's bold, it's funny, it's sexy, uh, and it's really a, a bold satire on like, you know, what's the, the media for being mm-hmm. famous for the sake of being famous mm-hmm. and what that means. But the actual stories, if you dig below it, uh, you know, it's it's very thinly based on, uh, what was her name? The Well, Joyce Maynard wrote a book that Buck Henry then adapted, and the book she wrote was based loosely on the true story of the Pamela Smart murder, right. uh, which Helen Hunt plays in a TV version that is just none of the fun, just a straight right. you know TV movie biopic where it's yeah. just about seducing your student. She was a high school teacher, seduced her student, had sex with them, convinced them to kill her husband. So it's very much every... Uh, every lifetime movie right. <laughs> wannabe, but the movie just pushes in such a bold direction. That she's a weather uh, weather girl is trying to go up in in terms of being a famous on on air celebrity. She doesn't really care what it's for. She just wants to be famous. And I think it's <clears throat> next eyes wide shut. I think it's Kidman's best film where she it's just such a bold and kind of different role for mm-hmm. her. Uh, but this this is a it's the liberty. I think when it's, it's thinly veiled in this way is. I think the changes are really interesting, and if having watched, I watched the TV movie too. So I was trying to get it ground. And the heavy metal stuff's really interesting. That she, in real life, she was just like totally into heavy, used heavy metal more or less to seduce the kid. That's part of the real story. And then Van Sant actually just plays heavy metal, but doesn't really have to talk about the heavy metal stuff. He's got Joaquin Phoenix in one of the first times I noticed him for mm. sure, where he just popped as a kind of star. Him and uh, Casey Affleck's the, the two guys who kind of get lulled into her, and she's doing like a, a little documentary on high school students that she. That's how she seduces them. So I feel like this and this might go with insider and whatever the first movie i was talking about from the 90s i feel like these movies are no i don't ever hear people talking about to die for as a a film but i think it's highly worth renting and checking out if you if it's fallen through i mean i'm glad you mentioned buck henry i would say a lot of the credit for that movie should should probably go to buck henry but uh, buck henry is one of the great screenwriters of our time and has a wicked wicked wit and uh and and this is a bit of his 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 comeback screenplay yeah. after you know not having very many movies made at a certain point and so it was yeah. great to see you know Buck Henry screenplay get made well and that time. shows because I don't think of Van Sant in humor right. <laughs> when I think of the rest sure. of his movies that doesn't spring right. so that's why it's right. such a that's why it's so surprising this film uh, it just it has a lot of life to it I think mm-hmm. you know it's legs oh it's great and, and for, sort of forgotten like you said yeah. um, <clears throat> I guess I went with, with another kind of obvious uh, we didn't talk about it on the Hitchcock episode but I'm going to talk about Rope it was perfect yes 
An immaculate murder. We've killed for the sake of danger and for the sake of killing. We're alive. Truly and wonderfully alive. Even champagne isn't equal to us or the occasion. I'll take it, though. You're not really frightened anymore, are you, Philip? You can't have fear, you know. Neither of us can. That's the difference between us and the ordinary man, Philip. They talk about committing the perfect crime, but nobody does it. Nobody commits a murder Here. just for the experiment of committing it. Nobody except us. Um, mm -hmm. Which, I mean, is based on a play, which is based on the Leopold and Loeb murders. Sure. But in real life, uh, there's another adaptation, uh, a little bit more faithful, called Compulsion. Right. Which is a little bit more about the true crime of it. They, the two guys actually killed a, a boy, if I recall. And in Rope, it's two two gentlemen killing a friend of theirs. They're like college students, I guess, or they're college graduates. I can't remember where they fall, but um, but it's very Hitchcock in the way because it's yeah. as people might might or not might know or might not know. It takes place in one apartment and is done in what's supposed to be an unbroken take, but there's actually a lot of breaks where the camera zooms in on somebody's back and pulls out. But it's a uh, it's very much this chamber drama with. Uh, the two characters killing their friend in the opening scene and then putting him in a sort of a chest and right. then serving hors d'oeuvres off the <laughs> chest and bringing and inviting people over, including the guy's dad. And, and unfortunately, that one of their old professors, played by Jimmy Stewart, who um, starts to pick up on the way they're acting strange that night and, and eventually sort of figures out what's going on. But it's, it's just interesting to see this real-life murder co-opted into i mean i know hitchcock it wasn't written for him but it seems like it was it's a perfect hitchcock type story mm -hmm. i think so it's it's neat to see how well not neat but it's interesting to see how this real life drama and crime this is another crime type story can can slot really well into a filmmaker's sort of uh aesthetic perfectly um and so that's one of the things i think i like the most about it is um just the way it feels like a great Hitchcock movie. I mean, it's right. it's a lesser Hitchcock, but it's still really solid. Yeah, effort for me. And it's such an interesting case. I mean, I think that that's uh, it's it's like Badlands in the sense that the it was a case that that sort of shocked the nation and the the mere concept of people who sort of like kill, uh, you know, kind of uh, rich rich guys who killed because they feel they can get away with it mm -hmm. just for the thrill of it. Uh, um, it uh, it really it, it it shocked the country and and, and it became like a, you know a, a, a topic and so I think that's why you know uh, yeah the specifics aren't aren't aren't, aren't exactly 100 percent correct in rope but but that the fact that it's two guys who do this and and have that attitude it's like it was clearly Leopold and Loeb. Yeah, they yeah. very much believed as those real characters did that they were sort of above the law. Right. And, yeah, Is that it's, the story in Swoon? Yep. Indie mm -hmm. also, yeah, indie film. I remember that being an interesting film yep. too from the nineties. Yeah. Uh, well, then the last section, which isn't really cut, this is <laughs> this is where I to, to to fit this into five. It says classic slash epic slash war, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> and anything that's, else you want to do a slash. Uh, so you, you can you can. Well, it's funny. I, 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 uh, I um, well, war is a totally separate thing. It really does it feel really, like there are there is a there there are so many like. Um, uh, true, true story war films. Yeah. It's like every battle in World War Two yeah, seems to have its own film. Uh, um, and uh, um, uh, uh, but and and also I think in my and but the, I guess epic and classic sort of somewhat fit together. I mean they're sort of both what Scott and I were sort of reacting against right. when we started uh, sort of doing uh, in this genre. Um, uh, the uh, you know that sort of big. Uh, Loaded three-hour 
um, uh, epic film. There's so many of these these sort of like it, and even the it's one of those weird things where even the great ones, and I'll probably get in a lot of trouble for saying this kind of stuff. I a lot of them are only like half. I mean, like yeah. I actually think people are going to kill me for saying this. Lawrence of Arabia mm. is amazing until intermission. And then that mm. second half for me is just like, oh, he's got to cross the desert again. He's got to go back. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, I uh, I feel the same way about, and this would be part of a showbiz epic. I feel yeah. Funny Girl is oh, yeah. amazing for yeah. that until intermission. Right. You know, she sings "Don't Rain on My Parade." That 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 that, that leads right to intermission, and then the rest of the movie is about her and this gambler guy and and this marriage that's not good. And it's like that's not really what I want out yeah. of Funny Girl. Huh. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, in terms of a big epic, that I think people. Uh, uh, I kind of picked two movies for, in this category, and, and uh, this is this would fit into your war film category. But it's uh, for me an epic that totally works, uh, and people don't talk about it enough, even though it won Best Picture. Um, is Patton? All this stuff you heard about America not wanting to fight, wanting to stay out of the war, is a lot of horse dung. Americans traditionally love to fight. All real Americans. Love the sting of battle. Which is really, uh, it's a gigantic, poetic war film, but really a a character study. Mm. You know, and it's just one of the most amazing performances of all time from from, uh, um, uh, George uh, George E. Scott. And it's just just beautifully directed and written, written by Francis Coppola. And you know, uh, it's why didn't a, he direct it? Do you know at the time? I don't think he was big enough okay, at so the time. You know, it was, he won an Oscar for it. I think this is, yeah. you know, it's sort of uh, if you look at Coppola's career, even though he was, he always was Coppola. He always was a guy like I've got to, I'm going to yeah. reinvent motion pictures, yeah. and I'm the young guy. I think, <laughs> but it was really, I think, um, uh, winning the, uh, you know, creating Patton and getting an yeah. Oscar for Patton that allowed him to be someone on the list for the Godfather yeah. because you know certainly wasn't you didn't see Finian's Rainbow and yeah, say like no. hey you know that guy you know right. oh, what if we get the Dementia 13 guy that, that Dementia 13 that guy, guy he'd be excellent for that so I mean yeah. they then you know he famously was picked because he was Italian but he was Italian but he was also just won the Oscar for and it's a brilliant screenplay that also yeah. also goes postmodern it's, I mean yeah, the that sure. opening 10 minutes or it's, which is Patton addressing the troops it's yeah. one of these just one of the great openings of all time that's been parodied to death uh, people probably don't know the film but they know they know the Simpsons parody yeah. of of, uh, of of yeah. that opening uh, thing and um, um, what's also interesting and this is uh, uh, like sometimes Scott and I really like to talk to all the people the real people and and do uh, and we have to act like a journalist to do things and sometimes we don't and uh, uh, one of the reasons we don't is uh, at, at times is we don't want the the proximity of them to infect what we're doing. Like, we didn't talk to anybody in the o, in the, on the OJ thing, uh-huh. OJ piece, because uh, we felt like some people are dead, some people are around, and, and everyone written books, and then we all thought we, we would be much more, um, I wouldn't say democratic, but we, we, we knew the story we wanted to tell. Like, something like the Margaret Keene story, we had to actually find out the truth from her because it wasn't a book about her. Um, but in Patton, for example, they wind up using as a source, and talk, uh, it was Omar Bradley's Book and or Omar, or, you know, who's the character that uh, that uh, what's his name plays? Um, shoot, I'm trying to blank. Carl Malden plays. Oh, yeah. And it turns out that Carl Malden's uh, Omar Bradley had very, not that much to do with Patton, but because they were getting the stories from him, he becomes a, a, a big part of this thing. But Patton's a great film. You know, it's it's a movie that you know I can't necessarily really recommend 
that strongly on home video because mm-hmm. it's really in terms of an epic it should be seen yeah. on 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 the big screen it's a, it's you know they don't show it very often on the big screen but if you ever see a, a screening of it somewhere uh it was also one of those weird things at the time um you know, Patton is a bit of a, a, a you know, a, a Trump-like right-winger yeah. crazy guy. And coming out in 1970, it sort of like felt like a movie that, you know, before it came out, I think they were very, very nervous about whether, hmm. and so even they like subtitled it, I think, Portrait of a Rebel. <laughs> trying to like, <laughs> trying to make, trying to make it seem like Patton was this rebellious creature. Uh. And he sort of, he kind of is, uh, you know, the old joke was, um, um, uh, 20th Century Fox, you know, throughout the 60s had this catastrophe, and they wound up selling Century City, and all, you know, they they were basically really close to closing up shop, and yeah. and at the time they were like, oh Jesus, we have we have, they only had three films in production, and uh, um, it was uh, two war movies and a western, and this is 1969, and there was sort of like, there's like who wants two wants two war movies in a western? The war movies were Patton and Mash, and the western was Butch Cassidy, <laughs> and so it's like literally they 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 uh, they uh, they came alive. I also want to say just very because that's really more of the epic. I want to talk briefly about um, uh, just in terms of the classic, uh, uh, the story of Louis Pasteur, the uh, uh, the movie from the 30s uh, with um, uh, Paul Muni. The hospitals at Paris are pest houses. There's scarcely a doctor in the city who's not carrying death on his hands and instruments. Because of microbes, monsieur? Your private menagerie of invisible bees? Exactly. Um, it's, a, you know, it's, it's really one of the sort of the one of the first biopics from the studio system that sort of like became became that Oscar bait kind of thing. Yeah. I, I go you, you back up before I say like uh, the, one of those things when we read Oscar books there's always George Arliss's Disraeli <laughs> which always like like oh what the hell I'm you know I don't know anyone's actually seen it. It feels like a complete I have watched like 10 minutes of it once and it's a completely different kind of style of acting. Uh, but 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 Louis Pasteur holds up incredibly huh. well. It's really a, uh, 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 you 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 know, uh, it's a, it's it's worth tracking down in terms of just like what a classic, you know, Hollywood biography. And it's also short because it's a Warner Brothers movie. It's a, it's it's uh, um, and and Muni's one of those guys who always loved playing real people. Scarface. He played Scarface. He plays Scarface, mm-hmm. which is thinly veiled, and he plays mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know uh, uh, Zola. Which winds oh, up, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, um, and he plays Juarez, and he plays, you know, he played a lot of, lot of real people, and and sometimes, uh, the this particular genre, gets helped out when you have uh, a major actor who likes to play a real person, you yeah. know, uh, yeah, and some people give one a, give one a <clears throat> bit of a run right. of several films, <clears throat> you know, I'd say like two movies that I really love, that I didn't talk about either one of them is. Um, Sid and Nancy and Prick Up Your Ears. Yeah. And Gary Oldman doing both those movies. Prick Up Your Ears is an incredible, yeah. underrated little yeah. movie. Yeah. So those are those, you know, sometimes you have an actor who just likes playing real people and, and it's yeah. sort of like, it, it, it gives the the biopic kind of a kick in the ass. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know if we can even count mine as classic, but I feel like for the next generation, 1980 can be considered classic. <laughs> but uh, it's it's my next, honestly, next, not just because you hear about it, next to Ed Wood, I'd say these are my two favorite you know, based on true story films, is uh, David Lynch's Elephant Man. Sure. I am not an elephant! I am not an animal! I am a human being! I showed it to a class this year, and I hadn't seen it in 20 years, and it just 
it felt to me if I could show the universe, everyone in the world right now, a movie, I would choose this movie in terms right. of the humanism, and 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 it never feels Oscar Beatty in that way. Yeah. Like it, it's not that movie because it's made by an artist who is still just his voice is still just coming right off a razor head. Right. So a lot of this credit has to go to Mel Brooks's right. vision Absolutely. to cast a director like that. Absolutely, unbelievable. No. Mel, Mel, uh, I'm good friends with Mel Brooks, and oh, great. and Mel has two posters up behind his desk and one is the original producers and the other is the elephant man because he's so proud of, yeah. of that and he actually took his name off of it mm. you know it was brooks film but it's sort of because like, he know, wanted it to be seen he, serious because so. he was worried that yeah. no brooks producing the elephant man we'll be, uh, would be considered you <laughs> it know it, it, it would be you know not what it was and so he you know that that's a that's a totally selfish uh selfless act of a producer and so, yeah, yeah. To, to be able to watch a razor head and then Pair that with the story of an outsider and somebody who's being abused and taken advantage of, who has, who is such an outsider right. with all, and the way Lynch photographs uh, Victoria England and the way he portrays it as so other right. because of where he comes from, being an American and being literally an outsider, it merges so perfectly with the viewpoint of the John Merrick character. It's one of the most beautiful. Uh, performance, but the real watching it this time, the thing that really just blew me away was actually Hopkins in this movie. Yes, and and there's a moment in this movie where because he's he's uh, what is the doctor's name is uh, Doctor Treves, and he's been helping him from the start, and he discovers him being taken advantage and abused in a carnival uh, and freak show, and he takes him and you know he hides him in, in the you know away from the rest of the doctors because he he knows mm. they'll you know eventually uh, kind of be found out and might be kicked out. But there's a moment about three quarters of the way through the movie where for just a second, he starts to realize that he is also yeah. exploiting yeah. him for fame. And there's a look in his eyes that is one of the most powerful things I've seen in a movie this year, that I've, a film I rewatch, where you're just like, oh shit. Like, this is just one of those magical moments that you get in a movie like this that complicates the whole system of what you've been watching. And yet you can't take away from what he gave Merrick, you know, it's still yeah. amazing that he gave him a chance at life. And the choices Merrick makes and the internal life, kind of like, you know, it's talking about heavenly creatures, the internal dream life, which is saying, you know, obviously Lynch is so well known for, what he gives him the, the, about his mother and about trying to have the dignity of just sleeping on your back right. for one time. It's, it's one of the most beautiful movies ever made. And it is probably would also be considered postmodern in, sure. the, in the approach visual approach but it feels again like Lynch is making his own autobiography it feels like he puts those early two movies pair so well at just putting yourself into yeah. the movie and I, I, it's hard even though I, he's made a lot of other movies I love I feel like those two films together are it's funny I had not revisited it since 1980 and watched it again this year yeah. and I don't remember why I put it on but I, but it was just like you know I was blown away yeah. it, it was as powerful as I remembered because I, 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 I was I was for some reason expecting it to be this a little bit more conventional, a little bit yeah. more. I was expecting it to be like, oh, I, oh, that was good in 1980, but I'm not really sure of it. And I was still just, it was unbelievable. Yeah, we go back to that yeah. Raging Bull, <laughs> Raging yeah. Bull, Elephant Man, yeah. both losing to ordinary yeah. people. Actually, there was a third, there was a third biopic that was nominated for Best Picture. Oh, really? It was Coal Miner's Daughter. Oh, oh my wow. God. That's another so good one, yeah. Those, those three were all nominated for Best Picture. That's amazing. Right. But yeah, the really, only reason I really want to put it on it, because I feel like, like what you just said is exactly what I was thinking. I actually think when I first saw it, I felt it was a little more routine. Than, right. And then you see all of Lynch's work. I go back and go, no, this is actually extraordinary for when it was yeah. being made. And I hope somebody takes a risk and goes back and checks this movie out. It's, I'm due for a rewatch. It's, yeah. it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, I took this as an opportunity to watch a Howard Hawks movie I hadn't seen before, uh, and that's Sergeant York, ah. from 1941. Well, I reckon I can do a little better when I get used to this here rifle gun. Here's five chances to do better. 
Fire one ready. Hey, what are you wetting that front sight for? Why, it kind of cuts down the haze. I always wet my sights when I'm fixing to do some shooting. Okay, do some shooting. I used to have, for a long time, I think I had a Gary Cooper problem where I just was <laughs> like, I don't, I don't connect with the way this guy acts. He's a little, he feels stiff in a mm -hmm. way to me, and I just couldn't get into it. I think I started with High Noon. I can't remember which movie, but that made a now That's I, sometimes a problem when you start with uh, their older work. Yeah. So you get in your mm -hmm. head the stodgy older dude. Yeah. And so you wind up like don't not really getting like what made him what he was. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, don't have a problem with High hey, Noon too. I don't. I, I it's not. Doesn't do anything for me. I'm getting better with it, actually. Yeah. I, I watched it um, again last year, and I'm kind of coming around. I mean, I'm still a real Bravo guy as far as right. High Noon versus Real yeah. Bravo. But but anyway, um, I, I think I started to see some of his earlier stuff, like the Lubitsch stuff, Design for mm -hmm. Living. I mean, you, you see that, and you're like, or you see him in Love in the Afternoon, even. He's older there, but... I don't like that one either. You don't like that, that one? Because, once again, he's just way too, stiff? Old. He's yeah. all too, way too old. The movie that, I, for me, in, in Cooper, is a movie called Peter Ibbotson. I haven't seen that. Peter mm. Ibbotson is one of uh, I I stumbled upon it because um, it was on a list of uh, like Louis Bunuel's five favorite films oh, yeah. or something. Ooh, I was like, I want to see that whole list. And it was like, and it was, and this it's a studio picture. Hmm. Uh, um, God, I forget who made it, but it's on it's on a it's on a, some Gary Cooper box set. Uh, but it's un, it's very Lynchian. Yeah, because it's about two people who um, uh, uh, who fall basically fall in love with their children and mm. later in life they, they re-meet and then he winds up becoming like a political prisoner of some kind but he's able to visit her in his dreams and so mm. it's all about like the fact that they have this relationship that develops in in his dreams oh crazy so it's, it's, it's huh. crazy what, what period is that like 50s? Uh, no no this early. is like this is uh, late 30s early okay. 40s something wow. like that something I like that gotta see that also yeah. Fountainhead is great if you yeah. I actually like him in Fountainhead yeah, Fountain that movie is really interesting that movie is great I think there are certain movies that are suited well to his acting style and I think this is one of them actually Sergeant York is one he of them he won the Oscar yeah I forgot about that yeah he because he starts as a like a backwoods a godless backwoods hick right. the opening scene is great it's like Walter Brennan plays this pastor this priest and he's trying to give a you know, give a little uh, mass or whatever, I don't know, have a meeting or whatever. And outside, Gary Cooper and his brothers are just hooting and hollering, shooting trees and throwing whiskey bottles and just generally, you know, being <laughs> not men of God by any means. Um, and what's interesting about the movie is it starts in that territory and stays there for a really long time. Mm -hmm. it, it goes through this whole thing about him being a farmer, a girl that he likes, this piece of land that he wants. And it isn't until, I want to say almost like three quarters of the way into the movie, definitely past the halfway point, um, it felt like before he joins the army. And that's where you start to see what he's known for, which is uh, a specific battle where he single-handedly took out like a whole bunch of German machine gun nests. It's a really dynamic scene, to, mm -hmm. even to this day. Um, but like I said, he has this certain, um, there's something maybe about Lancaster too, had this um, earnestness about them that within the context of certain characters is really affecting. Yeah. And I think that's what happens here is you see him in his own naivete sort of trying to come to terms with uh, his ide his spiritual ideals and where what he should be doing with his life and all these things. And it really works. It's, it, I believe it because, it because of the way he portrays it. And um, by the end of it, I was genuinely moved by the movie. And it was just one that I had avoided forever because I thought it was very like, 
rah 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 United States, yeah. and I. I'm not a big fan of those movies, especially yeah. like right now. It's just not a thing I like to think about. But this is definitely one that was a classic that I should have seen, and uh, I'm glad I did. I was actually surprised. Uh, the, name, the name is escaping right now. When the the Mel Gibson movie from last year, uh, uh, the, uh, the yeah. one about the, um, yeah, like the the guy who wouldn't right wouldn't bite. Kill, I mean, uh, there's a little bit of Sergeant York in that movie. It's a similar mm-hmm. kind of thing where there's a, you're you're forever in that farmer period, and again, then he goes to war, and he and he's going at war in a different, more spiritual kind of way. You know. Yeah. Uh, there was some similarities between those two films. Oh, I got to see that. It's cool. Uh, are there any randoms that you just want to throw out? We don't have to go in depth because we're taking a lot of your time. But are, were there any others that you were thinking about while you're uh, in terms of this category, yeah. uh, or, or in general? Um, yeah, in this category, I was, you know, I almost did Amadeus. Yeah, because of my work with Milos and yeah. and uh, you know, just I think he did an amazing, such an amazing job, and that's a that's a an epic, big, beautiful lush film that's three hours long about a great man but he's puts a, he spin he spins it you know it's about the it's not it's about the it's about uh uh you know uh the this great man that the, the Salieri doesn't believe deserves it yeah you know yeah. The, the the randomness of so that one <clears throat> easily could have been could have been in show business it could have been in crime. It could have been an epic. It could have been a number of these things. And it reminds you, like, uh, whose perspective we're hearing the story from. Yeah. Um, my mom's visiting from New Zealand. That's actually pretty funny because uh, remember that Rob Roy biopic? Mm-hmm. Rob Roy. Um, the villain in that piece, which is Tim Roth's character. He's the Earl of right. Duke of whatever. Uh, we are direct descendants of that character. Ah. Now, my mo- I grew up with my mother telling me that he is a hero and a hero of the people. And in all the Scottish things, watch that movie. And I said, Mom, he's like the villain of the movie. And she's like, well, it depends which biography sure. you read sure. and it made me think of the show when I was like I was like that's pretty funny like it really yeah. depends who's telling the story yeah, it does. from Rob Roy's he's yeah. a villain <laughs> yeah that same with the guy with Patton and suddenly it's his story yeah so um yeah so uh, uh, you know Amadeus is also a movie that that uh, when I first saw it I think I was like thought it was too cool to like this yeah. movie and and uh watch it now it's just it's a it's a flat-out masterpiece and Milos is, a, yeah. is one of the best yeah. and he and Milos brings his Milosians to it I mean it's a, based on a play by Peter Schaffer but the you know the thing about the play is it didn't have the music and yeah. Milos manages to somehow work in all that, all the music of, of Mozart into that into that piece, and and um, you know, it's just about the frustrations of someone who's who 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 works so hard and believes that he's trying so hard, to, you know, and then and then the gift just comes naturally to somebody else, yeah. someone that he just he doesn't even think is a good person. Yeah. And the best for my the best scene in the film is is when Salieri, uh, it's a throwaway scene where Salieri plays like a little tiny piece he's working on for Mozart. Mozart like it's like oh my god that's great that's fantastic. <laughs> well, you know, so maybe what if you try this and just just throws out this a different little, like three keys to uh-huh. it and and Salieri just looks at it and realizes that this be the thing he's been working on for like a year. <laughs> <laughs> Most are just made better in right. like five seconds. I feel like know? that jealousy probably exists a lot in Hollywood. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably <laughs> good. Uh, we weren't taking. We were okay. There's one title I was going to throw out a modern modern film that I felt because we didn't do modern. I felt like we're kind of like this. There's almost like contemporary. The last few years, this kind of right. category. I thought Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Oh, it's extraordinary. And, and on a visual level, what Kaminsky did with the camera yeah. in the opening 20 minutes to kind of uh, ground you in the in the inside the locked prison of a, a guy's body as he views the outside world. It's about a, a, the, the is it Vanity Fair. Uh, is it Vanity Fair? Was he? No, L editor in yeah. France, and he has a heart attack, and he's stuck. It's one of the most incredible performances, but also just the way the camera is used. And Julian Schnabel had, is an Dunder director who's right. only made you know biopics. His Basquiat film, right. I think, is pretty interesting. Yes, Gary Oldman's really good in that in the small role. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a good film, but I think this film's actually kind of extraordinary. Like, and the way his soundtrack's used, very contemporary soundtrack, yeah. very contemporary visual style for something that could be 
utterly unfilmable. Almost kind of like Kubrick would say, you know, if it can be written a thought, you can film it. Right. And I feel like this is almost a depiction of that. So it's just one I wanted to throw out there. It's a great one. Yeah. But, uh, well, thanks so much for your time. Thank yeah. you. Hugely um, appreciate it, Larry. No problem. And, been, obviously uh, big fans of yours, and it's great to talk to you about this genre that you've made better yourself with no, your work. You but, but my partner, Scott Alexander, of course, too. Yes, so absolutely. You and Scott. joining us. So. Yes. And um, is a McAfee the next thing we will expect uh, series or something that's, sooner? That's the, that's the next thing we've been, that we have announced. It's okay. a movie called King of the Jungle uh, with Johnny Depp as, as John McAfee. And so it seems it seems well on its way to production, so we'll see. You never know. Something could, something horrible could happen and fall apart. but uh, Not by the time this podcast Correct. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. good. Thanks so much. All right, great. Thank Thanks you, guys. So. All right. Bye-bye. That was great. With all the taboos attached to sex, it's no wonder we have the problems we have. It's no wonder we're angry and violent and genocidal. But ask yourself the question, what is more obscene, sex or war?